Well, if you have a Bible, you'll want to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. It's printed for you in your bulletin as well. And once again, welcome to Trinity Grace. We're so glad that you're here this morning. If I haven't yet had a chance to meet you, my name is Michael. We're especially glad if you're a first-time guest with us. As some of you may remember, we started a new series last week that's going to take us through the end of the summer, and it's a series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount covers three chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, specifically chapters 5, 6, and 7. And last week, we spent some time looking at the first 12 verses of chapter 5. It's what's known as the Beatitudes. They're at the very beginning of this sermon from Jesus. And they're a description of what it looks like to be citizens in God's kingdom. The Beatitudes are the characteristics of a disciple. And as followers of Jesus, we learned last week that we are called to recognize our poverty. We are called to mourn over the effects of the fall that we experience in this world. We are called to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. We are called to purity of heart as we follow God. That's who we are called to be as disciples in relationship to God. And now this morning, Jesus turns, and in our passage, he tells his disciples how they're called to relate to the world. So we talked about how we relate to God. Now we get to talk about how we relate to the world. What does it mean for the church, for Christ's followers, to be engaged in the culture? What is our role as disciples of Jesus when it comes to how we interact with our friends and our neighbors? specifically with those who wouldn't even claim to follow Jesus. Well, we get a picture of what that looks like in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. You follow along as I read. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who's in heaven. Well, this is God's word. It's given to us because God loves us and he wants us to know him. So before we look at it, let me pray for us this morning. Jesus, we are thankful that you are the light of the world, that you are one who holds all things together. And we pray this morning that as we see the ways that you have come to be light in our own hearts for the way that you hold our own lives together, that that would motivate us, compel us to move out to be light and salt to those that we interact with on a daily basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as some of you know, it seems to be a theme this morning, an RUF theme. I spent seven years on campus at Trinity University as a minister with our denomination, working with RUF. And one of the more exciting things about being on campus, and especially at Trinity University, was the guest speakers that they brought through campus through the years during my time there. During my time on campus, I saw guest speakers come through Trinity, guest speakers like Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell. Uh, I saw Bob Woodward, Jane Goodall was there. The kind of speakers they hosted through the years, as I think back about it, is pretty amazing. As you might imagine, with these kind of speakers coming through such a small campus, it's really hard to keep their presence a secret. I remember the former British Prime Minister, David Cameron, came to campus a few years back, and I specifically remember being on campus the day that he was scheduled to speak that night. 
And it was obvious that the university was preparing for someone really important, especially with regard to the security that they had in place. I saw police cars all over campus throughout the day. There were black unmarked Suburbans lined up in the parking lot. Golf carts with armed guards were buzzing around campus all day long, all in preparation for the Prime Minister of England, David Cameron. Cameron was so influential and so important at the time that it was impossible to keep his presence on campus a secret. There was no way he could come and be inconspicuous. People knew he was there. And this picture of being conspicuous, uh, of being unable to hide, is a really good one to have in our minds this morning as we think about what Jesus is trying to teach us in this passage. Jesus is telling his followers that they can't be inconspicuous. They're called to be conspicuous, to make their presence known, to engage deeply with the culture in which they find themselves. In other words, the world should know that we're here. It's worth noting from the start that the you that begins verses 13 and 14 is not a singular you. It's a plural you. Oftentimes when we see you in the Bible, it is plural. We read it as singular because we're American. But more often than not, it's talking about a group of people. Jesus isn't just talking about individual Christians when he calls his followers to be salt and light. He's talking specifically about his community of disciples. He's talking specifically about what you and I would define today as the church. Jesus is calling his church, us together, to be salt and light in this world. And I wonder how you'd answer the question, what's the mission of the church? What are the disciples of Jesus called to do in this world? How are you and I supposed to relate with the culture in which we find ourselves? Well, according to this passage, the world desperately needs the church. Our culture, our friends, our neighbors desperately need for us to embrace our identity as salt and light in this world. But when it comes to how the church has related to culture in the past, we've typically seen the church fall into three different camps. They take on one of three postures or mentalities towards the culture they're in. One mentality we've seen the church take is the fortification mentality. The church has decided to completely avoid the culture so that they're not stained by the culture. It's kind of a bunker mentality in a sense. We withdraw so that we're not contaminated. And with this mentality, the church looks at the culture and seeks to separate itself from her, oftentimes viewing the culture in oppositional terms. It's us against them. Another mentality, though, that we've seen the church take is one of domination. In this mentality, the church seeks to triumph over her cultural enemies. Typically, this mentality takes a political bent, where we think if we can just get the right person elected to office, then we'll finally be on our way to victory. The basic threat in this mentality comes from a culture who has different beliefs than us. We tend to view the culture in terms of opposition And it sometimes manifests the church itself in the church being aggressive and power hungry. Yet another mentality we've seen the church take over the years is one of assimilation or accommodation. In this mentality, the church seeks to blend in and win the approval and the acceptance of the culture in which they're in. 
The, the church becomes so much like the culture that we lose our identity altogether. We lose our distinctiveness. We embrace the ideologies and the methods of the culture and we lose our prophetic voice altogether. We've assimilated. We've accommodated. These are the three ways that the church has typically engaged the culture, but there's a fourth way. And the fourth way is what's known as faithful presence or incarnation. It's actually what we see from God himself incarnating, taking on flesh so that he might live in our midst, being salt and light in our world. It's a mentality that recognizes God's love for his creation. We believe that God loves this world and he wants us to be agents of renewal in this broken world. And we get a taste of this faithful presence mentality from the passage that we've read this morning. This is what incarnation looks like. This passage is encouraging because it's telling us that we get to work with our father in the family business of renewing all things. In our passage this morning, we see the idea of faithful presence beautifully described by Jesus. Jesus uses the most conspicuous things known to the first century world as illustrations for who you are, for who we are, salt and light. These are items that played a daily role in everyone's life in first century Israel. As we consider this passage this morning, I want to look at it and ask three questions. First, what are we called to be as followers of Jesus? Second, how do we live out our calling as followers of Jesus? And third, we'll spend just a few seconds talking about why embrace this calling. Okay, first, let's spend a few minutes looking at what we're called to be as followers of Jesus. In our passage, like I said, Jesus uses two objects to describe what we're called to be as his followers, salt and light. And to understand what Jesus is calling us to be in this passage, we've got to understand how important each of these things were in the first century. You would be hard-pressed to find two more important daily items in the ancient Near East than salt and light. In fact, salt was so crucial uh, for folks living in the first century that the most powerful economy and army in the world at the time, the Roman army, would pay its soldiers with salt. It's actually where we get our word today known as salary. It's where we get the phrase today, is he or she worth his or her salt? Think about it for a minute, salt. Through the centuries, it's always been used as a seasoning, but in the first century, it had another important purpose. Salt was used as a preservative. It was used to keep meat and other food items from spoiling. No one at that point had a refrigerator in their home. It hadn't yet been invented. So in order to keep food from going bad, people would encase meat with salt so that it wouldn't rot. In this passage, Jesus is saying that our culture will rot without the influence of the church. Jesus is telling his followers that as they engage with the world, they are salt. They've got a preservative aspect, effect on this world. Notice how how definite this description is. I love it. Jesus does not say, you could be salt. He doesn't say, you ought to be salt. He doesn't say, maybe one day you will be salt. It's almost a settled fact in his mind that they are salt. Jesus has a very high view of you and me, his church. Also notice the definite article that Jesus uses in verse 16. He says, you are the salt. We're not one preservative among many, 
Uh, we are the preservative element in this world, the hope of the world in the way that it's kept from further decay. And this implicitly means that we live in a world that's characterized by decay. We live in a culture that's prone to fall apart. The current of the world naturally moves towards disintegration. Jesus is saying that as his followers, we get to have a preserving effect in this world. We keep things from falling apart. We keep things in our culture and in our society from experiencing decay. And what this means for you and me as followers of Jesus is that we're meant to run in as others run out. When you see a relationship that seems broken, when you see a relationship that no one else wants to touch because it looks too messy, you and I are called in to move in, to use our time and our effort, our emotional um, bandwidth in order to preserve people. It's, it's why it's so admirable to see Christians staying engaged in certain aspects and areas of our culture. Those that work in and appreciate the arts. Those that teach in the public school system. Those that are engaged in politics in ways that are honest and seek to serve the common good. Those that are bringing their presence to bear with social tragedies. Standing up for the unborn. Standing up against sex trafficking. The church is meant to intervene to keep this world from decay. And I wonder this morning where you see decay. When you get together with those closest to you, what aspects of our culture do you lament? I don't want to be overly simplistic, but a good first step for us would at least be to move into those areas with your presence. To say, not on my watch. This isn't happening as long as I'm around. I'm going to be here to stop this. But it's hard. And it's hard because our natural tendency it is the path of least resistance. You and I, we crave comfort and we crave ease. But as followers of Jesus, we're called to enter areas of decay to preserve. After all, it's what Jesus has done for each one of us. Jesus has entered into our areas of decay. He's entered into our lives in order to preserve and hold together what is prone to break down about us personally. Think of Colossians chapter 1. Where it says that Christ, uh, that, that it says that in Christ all things in heaven and on earth are held together. It's what we experience personally from the one we follow. If we have anything in life that we can be thankful for, it's because Christ holds it together for us. But salt also has another characteristic. Not only does it preserve, it also enhances taste, it's used as a seasoning. Think about how salt affects the food we eat. Uh, Have you ever tried to bake chocolate chip cookies and left out the salt? You can have the butter, you can have the flour, you can have the sugar, but forget the salt and the cookie just tastes bland. Sometimes it can even taste bitter, but add salt, add the right amount, just a little, and you've got an amazing chocolate chip cookie. But no one eats a chocolate chip cookie, at least I don't, and says, wow, that is some good salt, some really good salt there. We eat it and we say, that's the best chocolate chip cookie I've ever had. Uh, Salt is meant to highlight and draw out the best of food. And it's what the church is called to do in this world. Look, not only do we have a preserving effect, we also have an effect where we come alongside and we encourage the God flavors that we see in our culture and in society. So do you see love? 
We're meant to highlight it. Do you see integrity or beauty or faithfulness in marriage? We're meant to praise it. Do you see a job well done or creativity in life or nobility? We're called to appreciate it, to bring those flavors out from other people, to help others see and experience God's work in this world, to help them taste his goodness to them. As Christians, we're called to increase the flavor of life. It's unfortunate that Christians oftentimes get uh, the reputation as being killjoys uh, in this world. Uh, This isn't really the reputation that Jesus had at all. If you read the Gospels, you get the sense that after reading them, Jesus was someone who came and added beauty and excitement and enjoyment to life. Jesus was somebody that others wanted to be around, but he was perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and he brought flavor and life to the world. As salt, we are called to preserve and to season as we engage this culture. But Jesus comes and in verse 17, he refocuses us with another metaphor. He calls his followers the light of the world. In the Bible, light's oftentimes used to describe God. An encounter with God is to encounter light. We read in John chapter 1 that Jesus was the light of the world who stepped down into our darkness. It says in verse 4, In Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in verse 9, it says that Jesus is the true light who enlightens everyone. As we think about light, I want you to think about two different purposes. Light is meant to expose, and it's meant to illuminate to expose and to illuminate. As followers of Jesus, we are the light of the world. We're called to expose the darkness of this world. But we don't stop there. We don't just show people their darkness. We're also called to take it a step further and to illuminate the way towards healing and towards truth. You see it throughout the Old Testament that God's people had this same calling to be a light to the nations. It starts in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, when God calls Abraham to be a blessing to the whole world, a light to the Gentiles that brings them God's truth. We see it in Isaiah 49 where God looks at Israel and says, I'm going to make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It's the same scope that Jesus intends for his ragtag group of followers in in verse 17 here in Matthew 5. He calls them the light of the world, not the light of Palestine, not the light of Samaria, the light of the cosmos. I mean, it's going global, this mission. At this point, they didn't see it because they were so small. But Jesus intends for them to have an impact on the entire world. It's the grand mission that you and I are called to as disciples. And this can only happen in our lives as we connect ourselves to the true source of light himself, Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says, We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And so as followers of Jesus, we've been called out of darkness and into light. Our way of life is meant to cut through the darkness of this world, to stand in contrast with it. We're called to reflect God's light and love to other people. It's kind of like the moon and the sun. We all know that we can't go outside on a bright, clear day like today and just stare at the sun. We'd be blind. It would hurt our eyes. But we can walk outside on a clear night and stare at the full moon, admiring its beauty. Rachel did this last night, trying to look at the meteor showers. Woke up at four this morning um, in order to do it. 
but you know that the moon's got no light in itself, right? It's just a rock. The moon is only a reflector of the greater light, the sun. And in the same way, people in this world may never be able to gaze at God. They're never going to go outside and look at him. They may be turned off by the idea. They may not know where to start. They may have no desire. Gazing at God may be too much for a lot of people that we know, but they can observe you as you reflect the light of Christ. This is the idea that Jesus is getting at in this passage. We're called to be reflectors. Reflectors of the true light. Uh, We have no light in ourselves naturally. The light we exhibit is light that we've received from God. We simply reflect the source of all light. And Jesus calls us to live attractive lives in this world that's oftentimes characterized by darkness. So we've seen who we are as salt and light in this world. Now let's turn and ask the question more quickly. How do we live out this calling? Well, in order to live out our calling as salt and light in the world, we've got to be engaged with the world. We've got to be faithfully present. We've got to be forward-leaning. We can't shrink back from the culture. I like how Frederick Bruner put it in his commentary on this passage when he said this, Salt does not exist for itself. Christians should not exist for themselves either. Salt a centimeter away from food is useless. Christians not living for people outside themselves are worthless. Look, what good is salt and light if it's not properly engaged, if it's not doing what these things are meant to do? It's exactly what Jesus is hitting on at the end of verses 13 and 15. He says, what good is salt that's lost its saltiness? What good is light if you hide it under a basket? Here's the thing. To have the effect that we're meant to have on this world, we've got to stand out. The main thing about salt and light is they stand in contrast to something else. They're different things altogether. Our difference as followers of Jesus is found in the fact that we've been given a new identity. We're now children of God. We're called to live like it. Look, the thing that we have to offer this world in our culture is our holiness. It's our holiness, which is a word that highlights difference. As God's holy people, which literally means to be set apart, to be holy, we cease to be different. If we cease to pursue holiness, then just like salt that loses its saltiness or light that's hidden under a basket, we're not good for much. It's actually in our difference in the fact that we're holy or set apart that we actually find our power and our influence. So how do we manifest our saltiness in our light in this culture? How do we live out of our identity? Well, there might be occasions where you're called to bold witness. God might call you to really big platforms. But more often than not, for me and you, maybe a whole lifetime's worth, it's going to happen in the more mundane, everyday aspects of life. In that case, our calling is to be where you are strategically and prominently. Has God called you to work in a certain sector of this city? Be there strategically and prominently. Has has, has God called you to be a mom at home, spending time with kids? Be there strategically and prominently. We can be salt and light in our vocations, engaged in the work that God has given us to do with most of our waking hours, treating others with dignity and respect, doing good work, being competent at your job actually blesses other people. That's us being salt and light in this world. 
We can be salt and light by telling the truth in a culture that's starved for it. By highlighting the beauty of marriage, trying to live as we love each other. By treating people with compassion, by being patient and loving with our children, by standing up for the unborn, by being a friend for the lonely, we live out our callings in these mundane, normal ways. But even this is hard because it's much easier for you and me to, be, uh, to, to blend in and be silent. It's our default mode. We've got to fight against uh, this uh, to live into our identity as salt and light. And as we do, Jesus tells us what to expect. We talked about the first expectation last week. You can expect persecution. As you live as salt and light in this world, you can expect to be scorned and ridiculed. But we also see that on the other hand, in these verses this morning, that some are going to find you attractive. So we see that attraction is highlighted in verse 16, where people will see your good works and then they'll be brought to God because of them. So as we live as salt and light, here's the thing. Some people are going to hate you. And other people are going to be drawn to God as they see your faith in action. And you know you're in the sweet spot when you experience both. When you live in this world and you experience both reactions. When you have some that ridicule you and some that are attracted by you. That's a good place to be. It's a good indication where we need to stop and do some assessment is when we always experience one or the other. If you're always experiencing ridicule and scorn, but never attracting other people to the gospel, then it's likely that you're just being offensive. That maybe you're being arrogant and self-righteous with your personality or with your methods, not with the actual message of grace. But on the other hand, if you never experience ridicule, if you never experience scorn, but always receive acceptance from other people, then it's likely that you're not sharing the gospel in all of its complexity and in all of its demands. On one hand, we can be insensitive, but on the other hand, we can be non-distinct. When some people are taking shots at you and some people are attracted to you, then you know you're following the way of Jesus. So that's how we live out our calling, assault and light in this world. Now, I want to turn and just spend a few seconds on why we would even want to embrace this calling. Well, this passage is really inviting us to follow Jesus in the renewal of all things. It's the kind of impact that we all desire, whether we would articulate it or not. The kind of mission that is exciting and captivating. And here's the thing. You are the salt and light in Northwest San Antonio. This is not an abstract idea. You are it. If this world is going to be loved, if this world is going to come to know Jesus, if this world is going to be saved, it's going to be because of you that are sitting here in this room, moving out and being salt and light in this place. But for us to have an impact, for us to realize this mission, we first have to be those who experience intimate connection with God ourselves. Did you notice at the end of verse 16 that God is called our Father? I mean, that's amazing. It doesn't happen often. Doesn't happen at all in the Old Testament, but happens as Jesus comes to the scene. As we trust in him, we're made sons and daughters of God in heaven. He looks at us and he says, if you want to call me by name, you get to call me father. 
And this father is one who is actively pursuing you and engaged in your life. He sent his son who moved into this decaying world in your decaying life in order to sustain and to renew you. Jesus is one who holds you together. He is one who exposes you. The Bible says that he knows your heart better than you know your heart yourself. He completely knows you, yet he still deeply loves you. And he gives us a whole new agenda as we seek to follow him, to preserve, to season, to expose, to bring truth to the world. And our hope and prayer at Trinity Grace is that San Antonio will be blessed because we're here. That the light would reflect off of us and shine through us to our neighbors and to our friends so that our Father in heaven might receive glory and honor and praise. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you so much for the way that you are salt and light in our own lives. You are one who has come down into this world of decay so that you might preserve, so that you might hold us together, so that you might bring us to the truth of who you are, so that we might receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. And we pray that as we embrace that more deeply, that you would make us more what you've called us to be, salt and light that moves out to share your love in this world with others. We pray that this would be so in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.